Okay, so last week we did our first introduction into the book of Acts, and today we're going to get more into the uh, book itself. We're still only going to cover a few verses today. If you've got uh, a Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 1. Um, and we're, we're going to cover, uh, Lord willing, seven or eight verses here um, in Acts 1. <clears throat> but the reason being, this um, opening chapter, especially this opening scene, is just so pivotal for understanding the story as a whole. So we'll spend a little bit more time with these verses. Generally speaking, I'd like to get through about half a chapter a week with this study, but of course the Lord always have, can have uh, other plans with that. Um, there was a question last week that was asked about, we were talking about Theophilus, and was um, when it's addressed to Theophilus, is that just a guy named Theophilus, or is it symbolic? Because the name literally means lover of God. And um, someone had asked, well, what's the uh, verb there? Is it a, a plural or is it a singular? Um, so I brought this here, to, uh, my Greek here, to look at. So one hand, uh, my first word I wrote to you concerns... Yes, it's a singular. So um, that is not conclusive, but it does suggest, uh, again, another piece of evidence that Theophilus was just a real guy. And uh, he was maybe the patron of um, Luke's writings, both the Gospel of Luke and also the Book of Acts. But that's one of those uh, mysteries that will probably won't be solved until our Lord Jesus returns. So uh, as we get started here in um, Acts chapter 1 today, I want to start with this question. When are some of the most difficult times to wait? When are some of the most difficult times to wait? And follow up with that. And is there ever an upside to waiting? Take a minute and talk at your tables. When are some of the most difficult times to wait? And is there ever an upside to waiting? All right, let's hear it. Any anyone care to share? What are what are some of the more difficult times for you to wait? Waiting is almost always hard, but what are some of those times when it's especially difficult? Yeah, Esther. When uh, your spouse is in surgery. When your spouse is in surgery, you're sitting there in the waiting room, just waiting. I mean, they call it that, right? The waiting room. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld has a bit about that. Like you know what you're going to be doing in this room, right? It's right there on there, but it's so difficult to. Wait and wonder what's what's going to happen. I saw a hand over here, Matt. Well, we kind of went in a little different direction with it. Uh, okay. When you're uh, cooking something like brisket, it yeah. takes a long time, and you're oh. trying to just leave it alone. Yes. Yeah. Yep. The wash pot never boils, right? Yeah. Wash brisket never cooks. Yeah. I think when you see a need, yeah, that hasn't been met. Yes. In your Sure, right. Waiting for something to happen. And sometimes that's God kind of nudging you to say, 
maybe you, maybe you'll step up with this. But you're right. I mean, that can be a, a, a difficult kind of waiting. Anyone else? When are some of the hard times to wait for you? Well, like I say, I think that almost in any kind of situation, there's, it can be hard to wait. But is there ever an upside to waiting? Is there ever an upside to waiting? Well, sometimes if you do something on impulse, it's uh -huh. the absolute wrong thing to do. Sure, right. Yeah. So if you wait and think things out. Right. Might get a better answer, better response. Right. Yeah, so not acting on impulse. Yeah. Well, sometimes in the waiting room, you can comfort others mm -hmm. uh, with God's word. Yeah, that's really beautiful. If you're in that waiting room, you're in that place where, wh what do we do here? Um, that can be a great opportunity to comfort others. I thought you were going to say catch up on your magazine reading, but that, <laughs> it's even better what you said. Did I see Sarah, did you have um, I was just thinking sort of along the lines of... Um, Sometimes you wait and see what's really how it should unfold, rather than yeah. you getting in there. And if and if you go in there too fast, you might take something else away from from somebody else. Sure. Their experience. Yeah, that's true. And so it, having that having that patience, I'm gonna wait, see what's going to unfold here, and and for the the right time, the opportune time. Very good. Yeah, Becky. So it's hard to wait to grow up. Ah, yes. Still working on it, right? Yes. You can end up looking very foolish if you think you're acting like a grown-up mm. and then look back and say, oh. Yes, right. That that looks dumb. If you yes, try to right. make those grown-up decisions before you're there. Right. It's, it's so we want to rush growing up and getting to that place, and then when we're grown up, we're like, why didn't I just enjoy it more when, when I had the opportunity in my childhood or my youth? Um, it's part of the, the tension of, of human life, yeah. And if we wait for something, where is I going to go with this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait to find out. I waited too long. I waited too long. The reward yes, right. can be much greater yeah. than what it would have been had we yeah. acted right. at the moment. Good things come to those who wait. Do it right now. Um, this opening chapter of, of Acts, you really get this sense of the waiting that the apostles um, had to do, which, as it turns out, becomes a, a kind of symbol or an anticipation of what the whole life of the church really is. So let's get into it. I want to pick up with uh, verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. And so last week, we looked at kind of that uh, prologue, the first paragraph, verses 1 through 3. Then <clears throat> verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Now stop there for a second. The, it says there at the beginning of verse 4, While staying with them. And the word that's translated as staying there um, has a connotation of while hanging out and eating together. Um, this was very um, common and typical of ancient Near Eastern culture that anything important that happens, happens over a meal. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as Jesus is having this kind of 40-day powwow with his disciples after he has risen from the dead, before he has ascended, he's eating with them. But I think that it's significant to point out or to, to reiterate, as it says number two on your handout, eating is part of resurrected life. 
I mean, you could say that maybe Jesus isn't eating. You know, he prepares a meal and they're eating. Jesus, aren't you going to eat? Well, I'm resurrected, so I don't eat. But <clears throat> no, eating is part of resurrected life. If Jesus eats after his resurrection, that's telling us that, res that eating is going to be part of our resurrection and the life in the new creation. Two other examples. Uh, these are just some of my favorite um, stories or accounts of, of the Lord's resurrection. In Luke 24, 36 to 43, um, just kind of uh, buzz through this. So he comes and um, they're talking among themselves and Jesus says, peace to you. And they're startled and frightened. They think they see a spirit. They think that Jesus is a ghost, right? They're hoping that he's like Casper, he's a friendly ghost. No. Um, <clears throat> Why are you guys troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. It'll be another Bible study for another day. What's kind of the biblical view of ghosts? And there are some interesting scriptures on that, but I'm not going to get into that today. But when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, marvelous phrase, and they were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, why does he do that? I ask the kids. The kids always know when I ask them this. Because if a ghost tries to eat food, it's going to fall right to the ground. He's not a ghost. He is a resurrected, glorified person. God man. And again, John 21, um, that time, that uh, appearance... And when he's on the shore and the disciples are out fishing and Jesus calls them in, it's 153 large fish. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. There's part of me that wonders whether or not these are going to be the first words of our Lord when he comes again. You know, calls us out of the graves, come and have the heavenly feast. Yes. Well, it says, well, they still disbelieved for joy yeah. and were marveling. Yes. And maybe, you know, okay, let's have something to eat. Yeah. Then that took completely away the disbelief. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. So he's, he, he's trying to um, bring them back and show them this is really happening here. You know, it's sort of like when we say, oh, pinch me. You know, am I dreaming? Uh, and instead of pinching them, Jesus gives them fish. Um, but he's emphasizing this is, this is really happening. Yeah, yeah. Would they have been fasting, do you think? Ooh, good question. Would they, would they have been fasting after Jesus' death? Very possibly. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and so it's a, another way to emphasize now the, the fasting is over. Remember, Jesus says at one point um, the opponents come to him and they say, well, uh, we, we fast, but your disciples don't fast. Why not? And he says, well, when the bridegroom is taken from them, they will fast. Um, but when he, you know, when he, while he's there, it's not the time to fast, it's the time to feast. So maybe they were fasting, and now Jesus is saying, it's feasting time again. So, I don't know, maybe it's a, a small point, but to me, I never want to pass by an opportunity to emphasize that life in the world to come, in the resurrection, is a physical, material, still heavenly reality, that we will be glorified bodies and not souls on clouds. There will be eating and feasting the likes of which we have never had or been able to delight in that we will have when Christ comes again. Uh, to me, that's a wonderful thought. And for those of others of you here who like to eat, 
I hope it is as well. So, Court, you look like you might have a question. I waited too long. Potlucks are part of our spiritual life. That's right. Potlucks are part of our spiritual life. Absolutely. That's not. That's not just gratuitous. That is part and parcel. That's true. Okay. Moving along here. So while while they're there, it says while they were staying with them and. they're going about through many days, okay, through 40 days. And then Jesus tells them, verse 5, um, well, continue verse 4, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And just to, to emphasize again this waiting, one writer named Yaroslav Pelikan says, Christianity is a religion of waiting. That this isn't just some add-on um, or some you know, a- exceptional feature, but this is really essential to what it means to be people of faith. Going back to the Psalms, just to give you one Psalm out of many that we could have chosen. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or again, Romans 8 says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Isn't this interesting? The example Paul uses there is labor and pregnancy. You talk about difficult times to wait when you're waiting for that baby to come. And have all of our kids, all of our kids have been late or past, past due, right? Um, three of them were two weeks late. Three of them were two Whoa. weeks late. And uh, you talk about difficult times to wait. You know, it's like, come on now. Come on, baby. It's so comfy in there. Um, but not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this is the character of the Christian life, is waiting. This is part of why I'm such an advocate for keeping Advent as Advent and not just making it like pre-Christmas or the times that happen to come before Christmas. What do I mean by that? Advent, as we have it in the church year, is truly a season of waiting, of hopeful expectation. The uh, traditional practice is that you don't even sing any Christmas carols, at least not in worship, before Christmas. Now, we'll break that from time to time. It's hard. And if you're at your house, you're at, you know, you're at the store or what have you, of course, it's going to happen. But it, I think it's a, a practice that attempts to emphasize Advent is a season of waiting. And in that way, it's kind of a miniature of our, whole, of our individual lives as Christians and our lives together as a church. We're going on 2,000 years now. I um, read in, uh, in, in my reading and preparations this week, it was pointed out, I don't know why I hadn't thought about this before, but... We have now, at this point, been waiting longer for the return of the Messiah than the Jews had been waiting for his coming from the promises that were made. For example, in the prophet Isaiah, he wrote um, in the 8th century B.C. Well, we're now 2,000, uh, we're 20 centuries beyond Jesus' first coming. Yeah, Anne. There wasn't a, an expectation of Messiah from time to Genesis? Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, I mean, uh, what... So I have to have my wife here. Wasn't there expectation? I'll put it this way. I think that from, from the time of Genesis, I mean, especially as we read it backwards and retrospectively, we can see those 
those kind of promises and Easter eggs, uh, as it were, that are, are planted there. But I would say that a full-blooded hope for the Messiah um, doesn't really emerge until you get to the time of the prophets, especially you know um, Isaiah and, and some of the other prophets. But no, you're right. I mean, it was there from the very beginning. The promise was there. But in terms of a real fervent hope, I think it was waiting a few years. But that's a good point. Can we say we're both right? Okay. <laughs> Good. Oh, no, you're making Plato. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead, Cor. Uh, they expected Jesus to come uh, soon after yeah. uh, he went up because he said, you know, this, did he say this generation will not pass away? Right. Right. Uh, so, Cor brings up a, a good point, and it's, it's really pertinent to the book of Acts. Um, that initially there is this hope and expectation that when Jesus leaves, he's going to be coming back soon, shortly. Um, but people will point out part of the fact that uh, the church has come to grapple with, with the possibility that maybe it's going to be a while is reflected in that Luke writes the book of Acts. People who are thinking that the world is going to end tomorrow do not write history books. Right? Um, but as the church grapples with this reality that, you know what, it could be a while. We better get some of these things down. Um, I mean, initially, it all lived by the, the oral transmission. Um, it was, you know, it was a few years before they wrote it down um, in the forms of the Gospels and, and Acts. But I think it, it reflects that recognition, okay, yeah, we don't know when he's going to return. He told us as much. So it's true. But this is part of what it is for us to be the church, to be Christians, is to wait with patience as best as we are able. Now, I wanted to um, uh, talk a little bit about the baptism of John. Verse 5, when Jesus says, John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, of course, today is the, you know, or the baptism of Jesus. And so, number four on your handout, John's baptism is to be distinguished from Jesus' own baptism on the one hand and the one that Jesus instituted on the other, okay? So, first of all, John's baptism was for repentance, okay? So, Matthew 3, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. My kids asked me the other day, would he put the honey on the locusts at least? I, presumably. Um, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. In point of fact, John's baptism was more akin to the way um, that many Protestant Christians will practice baptism today. So, um, for example, uh, different evangelical or, or Baptist Christians will do baptism um, and maybe do it more than once as a way of saying and emphasizing, I've broken away from my past life. I'm starting anew here. This is a, a fresh start. I'm rededicating myself to the Lord. And then they'll be baptized in conjunction with that. This is essentially what John's baptism was. It was a baptism for repentance. It was people coming and saying, I'm breaking with the past. I'm going to lead a new life. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that attitude, but we just call that repentance. And the, our gift of baptism should be distinguished from that. Martin Luther says the first thesis you know, of the 95 theses, 
When Jesus says repent, he means that the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. But he doesn't mean that you need to be baptized every day. See, baptism uh, is an, an act of, of the will day by day. It returns us to our baptism, that dying and rising. But uh, we don't need to redo baptism over and over again. Are you raising your hand? Yeah. Uh, what other cultures or whatever did baptism? Oh, that, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I can't give you a, a um, comprehensive answer to that. Leslie's question is, what other cultures did baptism? I, I mean, as far as calling it baptism, nobody. But the idea of a ritual washing is almost universal, actually. Um, when you, you think about um, Hinduism and the river, is it the River Ganges? Um, if you go to it at the right time, you, I mean, sort of like uh, the stories in the the gospel, the one who wants to go to the pool of Siloam, I think it is, or Bethesda, yeah. uh, Bethesda, so that when it gets stirred up, he can be healed. Um, when I was in um, Thailand, I found out among the Buddhists there, they have a festival in springtime, and uh, I can't recall what it's called, but it's the same idea. All day, everybody's um, uh, having a good time with like super soakers and stuff, spraying them each other in the streets and so forth, and, and I asked, what's the significance of this? And one of my Thai friends was kind of like, trying to wrestle with the words and said, it's because we try to wash away our sins. You know, it's like, hmm, that'll preach. Um, <clears throat> so there, yeah, with the super soaker. <laughs> I thought about that for baptisms, you know. <laughs> Arcadia days, just in the name of the Father. No, we don't do that. Um, but so that idea is pretty universal, I think, of needing to be washed. Um, one other thing along those lines, you know, G.K. Chesterton says in uh, uh, previous cultures, people would, um, you know, unbelievers would dispute the power of the water, but now in modern culture, people dispute the dirt. Um, that, you know, in other words, that we need to be washed. He said uh, in, in previous ages, it was always just a question of, you know, does baptism actually work? Do these do these waters and the word, is that powerful? But everybody knew and recognized that we've got a problem, that we need to be washed, that we're dirty. But now, uh, and you know, Chesterton was writing 100 years ago, how much more today we think, oh, no, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm doing pretty good. So, yeah. All right, so that's the first, John's baptism for repentance. Secondly, Jesus' baptism. I didn't really get into this um, today, but why is Jesus baptized? It's not because he needs to be have, need to have sins washed away. Right? We know that. Um, John's, or Jesus' baptism is for his consecration, his setting him apart for his mission. Um, in Luke 3, Luke's account of the baptism, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is being marked out and sent on his vocation. He has that identity as the beloved son of the Father. Now he is being sent on his mission. And from here, I mean, that's the beginning of his ministry. It goes about three years to the time of his death and his resurrection. But then thirdly, our Christian baptism is for forgiveness. Now, there's more to it, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But essentially, it's a gift of forgiveness. So it says in Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
So that in Christian baptism, now it's about our, our, it's fundamentally a gift. There's a repentance aspect tied into it, but it's fundamentally about God's gift of us being forgiven, washed, made holy, anointed with the, with the Holy Spirit. Um, when we get into Acts 2 and, and Pentecost, we'll talk more about what you know, charismatics, Pentecostal Christians, what they think about the you know, gift of tongues and the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to table that conversation for now. We'll hold that off for uh, another day. But questions about those uh, that three classifications of those different baptisms. It's a little bit confusing, but it makes sense when you look at the different circumstances surrounding that. Questions about that? Yeah, Bill. You, you said that in our baptism, which is for forgiveness, and then you you mentioned the word repentance and kind of passed by it. You said it, it's kind of a part of it. And it almost sounds as though baptism is conditional. Uh, it, 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 you, and I, I don't think of it as conditional. No, no, no. Yeah, and the way that I would tie bap- repentance into baptism is the way that, um, that Luther does in the catechism, which is to say that subsequently, repentance is a returning to our baptism. So every time we repent, when we're, we're contrite for our, our sins, feel guilty about what we've done, and we, we turn away from that, what we're turning back to is our baptism. And that recognition, I have already died with Christ and been risen. That's that language from Romans 6 that we heard this morning. I have died with Christ and been uh, raised with him so that every single day, a daily baptism, a daily dying to myself, is, that's, that's what it is to repent. But in that way, it's bringing us back to our baptismal identity. So yeah, not, not as a, a conditional sort of thing, but as a consequence of, of who we are now. Yes? But it is kind of conditional. Say more. That if I don't recognize that I am a sinner and I don't need a savior, sure. I don't believe. Yeah. So, so I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I just... I hesitate to call that a condition. It's more like, um, look, God has unconditionally given you this gift um, in, in your baptism. Some people will refuse to believe it. Some people will reject it. But that doesn't make it any less real or, or um, efficacious. If you, if you are going to disbelieve and turn away from it, from, from God altogether, um, uh, in the image that the early church used is that it's like in baptism you are placed onto the ark of faith. It's a very common image for the church, you know, and the ark, the boat. Um, and if you renounce your faith, turn away, it's like jumping off the boat. Um, but the solution then is not, um, if you do come back to faith, is not to build a new boat, it's to return to the boat from which you left, right? Um, it's, it's coming back to what God has already done for you. Does that make sense? So I, that's why I hesitate to call it a condition. Um, but I mean, if you don't believe it, then it doesn't avail for you. That's true. Um, or if you, you know, reject, spurn that faith. Um, but I think that God is a lot more patient than we tend to give him credit for. He, he puts up with a lot from us. So, yep. Good. Okay. <clears throat> Moving along then here to uh, the next uh, paragraph in Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Okay, stop there. 
Now, this is really interesting. This um, would seem to be, you know, exhibit 31 of the disciples just being knuckleheads, right? And saying, okay, Lord, so that was really cool, all the death and resurrection part, but can we get back to you just like kicking butt and taking names, right? Like that's what it's all about at the end of the day, right? Um, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like they have totally missed the point. And I would say yes and no, okay? I think we can really overstate it when we just give the, the disciples too hard of a time here and say, well, they're still hoping for an earthly Messiah. And Jesus, don't they realize Jesus just came to give them eternal spiritual life? Well, like we've already talked about today, Jesus comes in order to renew the whole creation. And his kingdom, his reign and rule is about restoring this creation. They are right to hope and to long for that kingdom coming. It's, their hope is not the problem. Where they're wrong is on the timing. Okay? That's where they're wrong. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We know that it's not a dumb question because Jesus, he takes it seriously. I mean, he, he doesn't say, all right, you knuckleheads, you've totally missed the point again. He'll say essentially that at other points. Like um, when he says to them, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And they look at one another and they're like, he's saying that because we forgot the bread, isn't he? And uh, <laughs> True quote, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus is like, no, you guys, I'm not talking about the bread. Um, their problem is not their hope of the kingdom coming. Their problem is the timing. Okay, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Jesus had um, said, of course, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. That's where they have missed the boat. Okay. So don't give the disciples too hard of a time. I mean, there's plenty of other places where we can um, point out their knuckleheadness. But um, here is actually not necessarily one of them. So, yeah. so Jesus himself doesn't know when yeah. he will be returning. Yeah. Because it says the Father only. Yes, yes that's right. This is, this is right. And uh, I mean, some people have looked at that. Well, that's, that's problematic. It seems to suggest that Jesus is somehow not equal with the Father. There's things that Jesus doesn't, doesn't know, but it doesn't necessarily um, suggest that. Um, and perhaps after his ascension, the Father lets him know. I mean, we can't say, of course. Um, but no, this is part, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he doesn't have that. I mean, does, he knows that he's returning. Maybe he has a good idea of about when it's going to happen, but he doesn't say, I, I know the day and the hour. That's what he says. He doesn't know the day and the hour. Maybe he knows the month. I don't know. But, yeah, Courtney. Well, then Jesus was controlled by time, too, when he was earthly. Uh, so, Court says, then Jesus was controlled by time, too, when he, when he was earthly, among us in his earthly ministry. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of him becoming fully man is he submits himself to the limits of our humanity. He submits himself to time, which is part of creation. He submits himself to hunger. He needs to sleep, as I mentioned today. You know, he takes a nap. And it's not just him pretending to take a nap so that it's like, oh, look, Jesus is like one of us. No, he's fully human. He gets tired. He takes a nap because it's a good thing to do. See? Um, so, yeah, he absolutely is, is not controlled by time, but, he's, but submits he submits himself. He lives within time. Yes, that's right. That's right. So then Jesus continues. Um, so he gives kind of two responses to their question. The first one, it's not for you know, to know the times or seasons. But then the second part of his answer, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, so Jesus has given them this promise that they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. This the power from on high. Actually, the promise, um, the, the promise of the Father. Um, you will receive power when that Spirit comes upon you. Now, anybody know how long is it going to be from the time of Jesus' ascension to when that power comes? Ten days. Ten days. And uh, this is one of those neat places where our church here actually lines right up with the events of uh, the, the New Testament here, where uh, Ascension Day comes 40 days after Easter, and then Pentecost comes 50 days after Easter. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, end of the earth. Now, number six on your handout, our calling to be witnesses is an is and not an ought. Calling to be witnesses is an is and not an ought. What do I mean by that? I mean that this, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Not, you should be my witnesses. Not, you better be my witnesses. He's saying, this is who you are going to be. This is what you are going to do because of the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to worry about it. It's just going to happen. Um, I didn't put the verse here, but think of 1 Peter chapter 3. I mean, this is a, a very famous verse when Peter says, um, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks of you. With the assumption being, people are going to ask. They're going to wonder. Again, uh, famous words from the Lord in, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. That's who you are. Right? The worst that we can do is just try to run away and not let anybody see us. This is the Jonah approach, right? But even then, God still used Jonah. And then Jonah says at the end, I knew that was going to happen, God. I knew that you were going to be merciful to those jokers in Nineveh. Um, God uses us. Luke 24, you are witnesses of these things. And John 15, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Here, Jesus is really emphasizing it. So who bears witness? Does the Holy Spirit do it, or do you do it? Yes. Right? Both. The Holy Spirit is the one who is active and operative in and through you to uh, make your light shine, to bear witness to others. But then you do it. And, I mean, think about Jesus saying this. Don't worry about what you're going to say, he says. The Spirit will give you the words to speak. Have any of you ever experienced that? Have you ever had one of those conversations um, when you're talking about your faith or you have an opportunity to, to share and you say something, you're like, where did that come from? Yeah, Becky. I have a friend who gave me advice over the phone once. Uh, changed my life. Yeah. Changed my entire life. And when I went to talk to her about it a year later or something, she said, 
I don't remember. <laughs> and it was, I was thankful for the relationship, first of all, because like if my mom had said it, I may have hung up. Sure. <laughs> but Kim said it in a way that she knew I needed to hear. Yeah. It seemed. Yeah. But once we got talking about it, it was as if they weren't her words. Sure. Because she said, Becky, I don't even remember thinking that about you or feeling yeah. it wasn't her words. Wow. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's a powerful thing. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and you may, maybe you haven't had that experience before, but you probably will because God is working in you. Or maybe you have, and this is kind of to the point, you don't remember or realize it, right? In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say you have, this has happened to you, and you may not know it, see, um, because you will be my witnesses. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That's part of your baptismal identity, something that happens as a result of who God is and what he has done for you and, and, and in you. Go ahead. Kind of that. When, when I first became a Christian and I was at work, I knew at Ford yeah. you didn't talk about Jesus. Right, right. And, and you know, the, but there were some guys who did. Yes, sure. I mean, they were, you know, the... Yeah. I don't know, the guys who preached on the corner. Sure, right, right. Uh, but my boss came up to me once, uh, and he said something about, well, I, you're a Christian, but he says, you're not pushy like a lot. <laughs> he says, you're just, you're just kind of showing. Yeah. Like, wow. Right. I think that's a compliment. Yes. Yeah. You're, not, you're not pushy. <laughs> Right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think that this takes a huge load off when you recognize, I don't have to orchestrate this. See, I can trust the Lord to give the opportunity. And more, what we pray for then is the wisdom to recognize and respond to when those opportunities are there. You know, when the softball is right in front of your face and you're like, okay. And you know what? Sometimes you cut and you whiff, right? Um, but that's okay. That doesn't mean, oh gosh, I blew it and now this person is lost because I, I messed it up. Like, the Lord is going to take care of it. I mean, Ephesians 2.10, right? Um, that the good works, we walk in the good works prepared beforehand for us. He takes care of it. Right? He takes care of it. Good. Any other thoughts about that? Beautiful, beautiful thing here um, from, from Jesus. A promise. For us. Continuing along, verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right. The ascension of our Lord. This is one aspect, an essential, vital aspect of Jesus' life and ministry, but which I think just gets a lot short shrift from us. Part of it maybe is because Ascension Day doesn't land on a Sunday, and so we don't necessarily think about it. Though we did have our, our kite fly this past year. I hope to do that uh, again. Maybe that's one small way to help rectify that, uh, that gap. But the ascension is vitally important for two uh, principal reasons. One thing, the first thing about the ascension, the ascension means that Jesus fills all things. 
The technical theological term for this is ubiquity. Ubiquity. So, I mean, it's a, a word that you might hear from time to time or it's on Jeopardy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Ubiquitous means that something is all over the place, fills all things. So this is actually a technical theological term for Jesus that with his ascension, by virtue of his ascension, Jesus doesn't stop being a man. But as the incarnate son of God, he now fills all things. This is how, for instance, when we talk about with the Lord's Supper, that Christ is truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine. Say, how could, how could that be? How could one person be in all places at the same time? It's a variation of the kids. How can Santa Claus visit every house? You know? um, well, unlike Santa Claus, Jesus fills all things. And so at any moment, he can be at any point in the creation. Because now existing at the Father's right hand, which is the, the uh, position of ubiquity, now he can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And later in that same letter of Ephesians, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, that place where now he's ubiquitous, filling all creation. Second thing then, he fills all things and he also rules over all things. Um, I think of it like this because I'm a nerd. I remember when I was a kid, we had that um, show Inspector Gadget. I guess they've made a, a remake of it. It's never as good, right? Never as good. Um, but there would be the guy on the on his seat, and he would be uh, you know kind of petting his his cat. He was an evil guy. Okay, he was an evil guy. Um, so I don't want to keep that part of the analogy. But the um, ascension. Maybe we could go with another old cartoon, Scooby Doo. This would happen sometimes in Scooby Doo, where they would be at the house, and it would look like a normal house. And they'd be in the library, and then, you know, uh, they'd press something, and all of a sudden the wall turns around. And they find themselves, they're in the, the headquarters, right? They're in the control room. Okay. Heaven is like the control room of creation. And Jesus, when he ascends to the Father's right hand, now what that tells us is that now he is ruling and reigning over all things. He's sovereign over all creation. He is at the Father's right hand in charge. He's the CEO, okay, of heavenly enterprises. Um, that, the ascension uh, underscores that for us. This is who Jesus is now. We can be confident that he's in charge, come what may, in this life and in this world. Okay. So that's why the ascension matters, and uh, I think we, we neglect it to our, to our peril. Questions about the ascension? Two minutes on it, not nearly enough, but... Um, he, it, you wonder, well, what did that look like? Did Jesus just kind of take off, you know, lift off? Um, I don't know exactly, but the point is that he has now ascended to the Father. And as the angels say, suddenly showing up saying, hey, why do you stand looking into heaven? Uh, maybe because Jesus just flew up there. 
Um, but their, their point is kind of like, hey, um, don't just stand looking there. Now there's work to do. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is going to be about now. Confident that the ascended Jesus reigns and rules over all things, now the people of God go out and seek to bring and to bear his kingdom through their ministry, knowing the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing it all along. One final thought to leave you with here. Um, number eight, <clears throat> awaiting Jesus' return, Christians keep a left-handed half-hold on this life. What? I, I came across this quote from Luther. I just thought, this is, I love this. He's uh, referring to one of the passages of Jesus in uh, the end of the Gospels, talking about his return. He says, We are to know that our Lord and Redeemer will come from heaven, and should therefore, we should therefore expect his return at any moment. Consequently, we have a left-handed half-hold on this life. But with our right hand and open hearts, we await the day that our Lord will come in glorious majesty and splendor, so great that human tongues will be unable to put it into words. A left-handed half-hold. I'm you know, not sure exactly what uh, that looks like. But the idea is, yes, we live this life. We live in this world. We attend to the responsibilities that God has given to us, the good work that he has set before us. It's not that it doesn't matter. He's not calling us to go out into the desert and just wait until he returns. But in the midst of all of that, we don't grip it so tightly that we think, this is, this is the be-all, end-all, right? And this is especially important, I think, when we see things that disturb us or that trouble us about our lives or about the world. Remember, I'm keeping a left-handed half-hold on this. As with my right hand, it's open and awaiting the Lord's return. So, all right, thus far in Acts. Next week, we'll get to uh, the second half of the chapter here and the story of Matthias, the uh, forgotten apostle. So, we'll see you then. Thank you.